0: Hey friends! If you live in or around Washington, D.C., we wanted to let you know about an exciting event hosted by our own Linda Holmes. This Saturday at 7.30 p.m., NPR presents an exclusive panel with the stars from Amazon's new show, Good Girls Revolt. Join us at the Newseum for a lively discussion of journalism, politics, and the arts with stars Anna Camp, Joy Bryant, Aaron Drake, and Genevieve Angelson, plus Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton and journalist Lynn Povich. Tickets are going fast, so get yours now at nprpresents.org. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about movies, TV, music, books, and more. I'm Stephen Thompson. I'm a writer and editor with NPR Music. And on this week's show, we'll discuss two new movies, one massive blockbuster and one you'll be hearing about more during Oscar season. And as we do on every episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. So stick around.
1: Take Pop Culture Happy Hour and other NPR content with you all the time with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Songs we love, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One makes driving, working, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR One in your app store. We've got Doctor
0: Strange and Moonlight on the docket for today, but before we get started here in not-so-historic Studio 46... Let's go around the table. Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR?
1: I write about books and comic books and other stuff for the NPR website.
0: Cat Chow! Woo, woo! Oh, so good to have you back. What do you do at NPR? I'm a reporter with Code Switch. And Gene Demby, how about you, buddy? What do you do at NPR?
2: I'm a blogger and the co-host of the Code Switch
0: podcast. Yep. Excellent. Well, it's good to have you all here. Before we begin, we wanted to welcome new listeners who may have found us through the NPR Politics podcast or on NPR One. Welcome! Now, speaking of politics, we are recording this show on Monday, November 7th. We know this is a big week for news, and even though we were never going to talk about the election anyway under any circumstances, we did want to give you a heads up. Okay, so moving on. The weekend's big blockbuster is a long-awaited new entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Doctor Strange, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as an arrogant brain surgeon who gets in a terrible car accident and winds up becoming an extremely powerful sorcerer because that's how it goes sometimes. In this case, he is trying to fix his badly damaged hands, so he goes to Nepal, where he meets sorcerers, played by Chiwetel Ejiofor and Benedict Wong, and studies under the Ancient One, played by Tilda Swinton. Glenn, I'm going to start with you, because you are our go-to expert on comic books Mm -hmm. and comic book movies. How did you like Doctor Strange?
1: I was surprised that it works as well as it does, Uh, and I do think it works. I did not see it in 3D. Every critic is urging you to see it in 3D this is one movie you need to see in 3D I saw it in 2B (laughs) (laughs) I went to a uh, Alamo draft house and had a couple Guinnesses and it turns out that's also pretty good Um, Gin Eye I suppose Uh, it is visually spectacular in ways that struck me as novel I mean yes there's a lot of echoes of Inception in this Mm -hmm. but it's stuff you haven't really seen before I own a lot of the early Doctor Strange comics or at least reprints of them Mm -hmm. with art and story by Steve Ditko and script by Stan Lee and reading those things you never know what the hell's going on Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it looks great because it's Steve (laughs) Ditko. And this really captured that feeling for me. And the reason I'm surprised that it worked at all is because whenever something visually B-A-N-A-N-A-S is about to go happen, they go out of their way to enter what's called the mirror dimension. And I think this is an Mm -hmm. actual line in the script. What happens in here does not affect the real world at all. (laughs) What happens in
3: Vegas stays in Vegas.
1: (laughs) It's like A meta and B Mm. a little on the nose there movie. Uh, Because so if nothing matters, what's the point except it looks cool? Uh, And yet I still dug it. All right, Gene, what did you think of Doctor Strange? It was stunning to look at, even though it hit a
2: lot of those familiar Marvel beats. I mean, you know, we know the cocky guy who has to, like, you know, find his purpose in life you know it was sort of magic house in a lot of ways he's like this arrogant doctor who has to like you know save the world you know? <laughs> um but the first like literally the first 30 minutes feel like an episode of house It was like i mean
3: <laughs> oh my god and he did seem sort of hugh laurie yeah absolutely yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. um down to be a hard r's in yeah. the accent. <laughs> yes
0: there were some there were some accent Trying issues to i thought and it's american mm-hmm.
1: english accent work um
2: and benedict cumberbatch is really good in it a lot of the sort of supernatural hokum which is like a place where these movies often go off the rails yeah um it just breezes by really quickly so you're not sticking with it long enough where it'd be like okay that's stupid like it's it's not. Only, no one is like lingering on it long enough for you to realize how ridiculous it sounds. I was surprised at how much it worked because Marvel movies at this point are sort of like. It's like sort of trying to take in an individual game in a baseball season. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah. this thing yeah. does not matter. Like, it only sort of matters in the aggregate at this point. What is this, Marvel movie number 1415? Oh, 300,000. Right. Yeah. And this is still building to, I mean, there's a, you know, this is one of the things the movie does really well is like, you sort of don't feel the gravity of the Marvel cinematic universe like weighing on it. Right. Uh, except for in a few scenes uh, right. where, you know, someone knocks see the Infinity Stone. And you're like, oh, this is setting up, yeah. you know, the yeah. coming. There's a scene at the end, uh, one of the, the, the post credit scenes that sort of like. Yeah, that
0: sort of sets the movie's right. place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But it which, doesn't
2: feel like you need to have like all the, the backstory to come into this movie to watch it. It's, it actually sort of stands alone, which is impressive in and of itself considering how deep into the Marvel canon we are at this point.
0: Yeah, and I, I actually, I liked that about it. I, anytime they sort of hinted at its place in a larger Marvel universe, I just immediately forget my place right <laughs> and, and, and so as soon as they they start to weave in like reminders of where it might fit and i'm like mm, I'm out. <laughs> all right kat you've been sitting here you've actually just just like teetering on the brink of your chair i
3: actually am i wish that the listeners could see me right now um <laughs> I had a lot of trouble with this one because I wasn't going to watch it. Because earlier this year, there was a lot of controversy around the casting of Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One, where the Ancient One, the character, was originally Tibetan. And to a lot of people, this just seemed like another instance of an Asian character's role getting completely whitewashed. Right. And it didn't help that Robert Cargill, he's the screenwriter, he basically said that the Ancient One was this racist stereotype and he also originates from Tibet, is the quote. And they didn't want to risk alienating a billion people from China who could By potentially be watching it. Yeah. Uh. So I had all of this in my mind as I was watching it and I kept thinking, this is like the opposite of Rep Sweats where <laughs> I have like rep hate, mm-hmm. rep animosity where mm. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to enjoy this movie for what it is. And I did think it was stunning, but to me it felt like... Tilda Swinton is, again, like Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell or Emma Stone in Aloha.
4: Uh
0: Can't really get over that. So the fact that they put a white actor in a role that, by all logic, should be played by An Asian person. Right,
1: right. right. Yeah, but let's question that logic, okay? Because the comic that was made in 1963 does lean hard into the kind of lazy Orientalism uh, that a lot of Western literature does, where the East is Mm -hmm. this mystic place. The Mm -hmm. West is a place of logic and... And science. And science and rules of propriety. Mm -hmm. The white guy goes off to the East to get uh, transcendental, uh, to get insight. (laughs) Um, And this is Ian Porter. This is Somerset Maugham. You could argue this is even Herman Hesse. By the way, this uh, hero is not by any means, the first hero to kind of be a white guy going off to the uh, mysterious East. The mysterious
0: East. The Shadow
1: uh, did it originally. If you you consider the Shadow the first superhero, then it comes from there. His ability to cloud men's minds comes from his travels in the East. (laughs) You know, you also have Iron Fist. There's going to be a Netflix series where it's the same white guy goes to the East. Bruce Wayne has a little trip through the... and 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 the character of Doctor Strange was based on... Shandu the Magician, which was a radio serial that uh, Stanley really liked. Same guy, same white guy, American guy goes <laughs> to the East to learn things. If you think about it for even a second, they could have made a clean break here because the mysticism that this film, all of the Marvel magical heroes and villains occupy or, or use, has nothing to do with any belief, practice <laughs> sure. uh, uh, in mm-hmm. any Asian country at all. It is Purest mumbo jumbo. Uh, and in fact, it's like he used the Eye of Agamotto, the Book of the Vicente, the Book of the Cagliostro. It's like they could have set this in Sicily. Right, right. right, right. <laughs> or or Hackensack, New Jersey. Right. Uh, and, and had like Tilda Swinton playing a, somebody with a little chef's hat going, ah, it's a bit of pizza. It's a me, the ancient one. Um, but I also do think that
3: there's a way for them to cast Asian American actors in. That role without or it just being Asian actors. Or yeah, just Asian actors. With yeah. like Michelle Yao, or without sure. being totally Orientalist. And Tilda Swinton did an acceptable job, but I think other people could have also. Uh,
1: the thing about Tibet doesn't make a lot of sense to me because this is clearly set in Nepal, mm-hmm. uh, which is not Tibet. And in the actual original comic, the Sanctum, whatever, is in the Himalayas, which technically doesn't cross into Tibet. So, I mean, th- there's a lot of weird stuff in here, but the mumbo-jumbo is the stuff that I eat up with a spoon. I mean, it's like, by <laughs> by the hoary hosts of Haggath, by the r- ruby rings of Radigar. That's the kind of stuff that has nothing to do with anything, except that sometimes words sound fun to say.
0: It's interesting to me that the controversy surrounding the casting of Tilda Swinton is tricky in part because I and so many people love Tilda Swinton so right. much mm-hmm. and want Tilda Swinton to be plopped into as many different movies as possible to kind of Tilda Swinton it up and be weird. And it's tricky on one hand for me to lament the casting of Tilda Swinton in anything, and I also get the argument that the dangers of casting this character as some sort of like mystical dragon lady from the mysterious East. I could just as easily see them falling flat on their face, having cast an Asian person in that role. Sure.
2: And so I think to Glenn's point, they did this weird thing with sort of like, just try to like find the middle ground, which is like, let's put a white person in this role and then just have it have the same backdrop, which is like ridiculous if the argument was we're trying to break away from this racist stereotype, right. they still could have had an Asian-American actor yeah. or an Asian actor in that role and just set it somewhere else, right? I mean, yeah. like uh, to Glenn's point, none of that stuff is like married to, I'm doing air quotes here. So, ah, the air quotes. <laughs> um, in the Far East, right? But they didn't do that, right? And, right. So, and so, like, every time she was on the screen, I thought about that, right? Because there are other characters in the movie that are race-bent. I mean, she would tell 4s character is right. not uh, black in the comics. I mean, when when directors want them to be sort of incidental to the plot, they just make an argument that they're incidental to the plot. But I mean, obviously they're not. But
3: then, Stephen, to your point about potentially wading into sort of like dragon lady or stereotypical characters, Benedict Wong's character Wong was I mean, in the original comics was more of the servant type. He character. makes tea. Oh, wow. He yeah. makes tea, and yeah. so I mean, Benedict Wong in the actual movie was he was funny. He's he funny was and, he's a, he was and, and a bad ass. Yeah. He's also Asian, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's, not the,
2: it's not the Asianness that makes that the execution bad, right, right. or potentially dangerous. It's the execution, right? I mean, right. it's the you know it's the actual execution that matters, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me like so much of this movie was just trying to have its cake and eat it too in as many ways as humanly possible. I yeah. mean, you you said it yourself, the argument about like, well, we don't want to alienate the audience in China. Like this movie has made, I think it's made like hundreds of millions of dollars overseas even before it even came out in the U.S. Wow. And it's very clearly, not unlike actually the Kung Fu Panda movies, <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of going for a fusion of American movie styles and Asian movie styles.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, it did have jokes. It did work like that. That's uh, I funny. Think Dan Harmon, I think, came in to do some punch-up on it. Mystical battles are always tough to film because at the end of the day, it's just people grimacing at each other <laughs> right. with CGI. With, with occasional the street, like, yeah. cracking. With making the of... weird
3: hand motion. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they do things like they make his cloak, the cloak of levitation, they make it a character right. in a way that is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, they could have uh, done this very rote. And you know, to your point, it's another origin story. Yeah, but I mean, this isn't like seeing the Waynes get slaughtered again. Exactly. Like who knows Doctor Strange's origin? <laughs> yeah, I did not like, know Doctor Strange's like, origin. Like, nobody it's came out of this going game. oh, that again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do want to sp- talk about something else about this movie and the part that I really could not get enough of and ultimately what made me wholly recommend this movie is just the incredible visuals mm-hmm. yeah. and to me this film was just exhibit a in why junky cgi is junk and and like i had gotten to the point where i was starting to blame cgi i was starting to think like cgi has kind of wrecked a lot of action movies because you know you see the building get knocked over and you just feel like in so many of these movies in so many of the superhero movies in so many of the star trek movies in so so many action movies, you could literally swap giant chunks of buildings getting knocked down, use them as stock footage and plug them into other new movies and I would not be able to tell that you had done it. Uh And so much CGI is so generic and you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're watching and it's true in this too. Like, you can see where the actors are clearly working with green screen and all the heavy lifting is being done by animators and visual artists and special effects operators. But to me, the visual imagination of this Movie really put it a cut above so many movies like it. And in a way, like I remember when we talked about Ant-Man, I'm watching battle sequences here that are unlike any battle sequences I've ever seen before. I'm just seeing a battle from a completely different perspective in a completely different way. And that's so fun and cool. And I had kind of the same experience with this. Like instead of seeing buildings get knocked down, you see some buildings get knocked down, but instead of seeing buildings get knocked down, you see cityscapes folding in and buckling on themselves and forming the aesthetic of this movie I was trying to to put my finger on exactly how to describe it and I came up with steampunk M.C. Escher. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I like that. Like you're watching these incredibly elaborate like hypnotic visual art pieces unfolding in this incredibly kinetic and exciting and beautiful way. Glenn joked earlier about like oh my God, you know, everybody's saying well you have to see it in 3D, you have to see it in 3D. I I genuinely was glad I saw it in 3D. Uh And I think it's the second movie I can say that about after like (laughs) Life of Pi. Um, It is is so gorgeous to look at. And there were several points, including some of the stuff where they play around with time a little bit and talk about time paradoxes. I'm just such a sucker for that. Your Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat you know, like goofing around with manipulating time. I just love that stuff. And yes, tons of it is mumbo jumbo, but I ate it up with a spoon.
1: Yeah, and especially when we go to the dark dimension, there's a mirror dimension (laughs) and the dark dimension. And when we get there, it's... An actual Steve Ditko panel yeah. down Is really? to the yes, down wow. to the so it's there for nerds like me and it <laughs> looks fantastic. And so yeah, it's like little moments like that. I mean, I guess you call them Easter eggs, but they just felt like it was part of a cohesive whole of this universe that Stanley was just kind of riffing on, just kinda making <laughs> stuff up. Uh <laughs> Just because, you know, it's literally hand-waving. <laughs> very literally. Don't worry about this and then have him make, very trippy. Some, yes, make some very trippy hand motions.
0: I'm sure that many people at home will have many thoughts about this movie. Come find us on Facebook at facebook.com pchh or on Twitter at pchh. After the break, we will discuss a movie that cost quite a bit less to make than <laughs> Doctor Strange, Moonlight. So come right back.
4: Support for Pop Culture Happy Hour and the following message come from the new original comedy series Search Party on TBS, an official selection at the 2016 South by Southwest Film Festival. Watch the mystery unravel as a lost soul and her group of friends search for a missing girl they barely even knew. You can binge the entire season of Search Party in one week, starting Monday, November 21st at 11, 10 central on TBS.
0: Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. November is upon us, which means we are finally, at long last, heading into the awards season for movies. And if there is an early frontrunner, It may well be Moonlight, a coming-of-age film written and directed by Barry Jenkins, based on the play In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue by Terrell Alvin McCraney. The film tells the story of Chiron, a quiet kid who comes from a troubled household in Miami and has to deal with a lot of bullying, in part due to his sexuality. Eventually, we see the man he becomes, but the process is very slow and halting, with a lot left unspoken and unshown over the course of a couple of decades. So the movie is broken down into three roughly equal chapters, in which Chiron is played by three different actors as a child he's played by Alex Hibbert as a teenager he's played by Ashton Sanders and as a man he's played by Travante Rhodes now I'm gonna start with Gene because <laughs> I know yeah I know Gene has thoughts dun, dun,
3: dun. So I should
2: say up top that I love this movie I think it's like my favorite movie that I've seen this year and I had a so many feelings after seeing it. Um, but one of the first things I felt was like the sense of dread that it was gonna be ruined by this like deluge of think pieces <laughs> oh, yeah. about oh, black masculinity. Yeah. Yes. Uh, can you talk uh, about
1: Moonlight's <laughs> intersexuality vis-a-vis black masculinity. Oh my gosh. In a Hobbesian world, can you do that? I, for started, me,
2: I found a few of them and I started reading them off to my girlfriend. Like, let me just like just the, the this like bloodless pro like it's just yeah. like, oh uh, like the thing about it is like all that stuff is is there to be sort of dissected, but also it misses a lot of the point, right? Like the, so much of this movie is about how it feels like, because they're, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie, and and it doesn't really have much of a of a plot. I mean, there's yeah. a there's a there's an arc, but like even when we Coach, which we did an interview with Barry Jenkins who's the Woo-woo. director that is um, a great interview. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. But one of the things that was hard for us when we did that interview was that there was not a lot of clips to pull out right. because there, well, all, there it isn't so a lot quiet. of dialogue. Very quiet. It's a really quiet movie. A lot of stuff happens on the faces of the characters, and in the scenes in which people are talking, they tend to be pivotal scenes, and so we couldn't like pull the clips because we would be giving so much away. Because so much of it is, and and when people ask you like what this movie is about, it's like, it's about how so much of this feels, how suffocating it is, how liberating some of it is. Mm -hmm. There is a conversation to be had at 30,000 feet, you know, using the jargon of the spaces we have it, but it actually does a disservice to the art of the film. Kat, what'd you think?
3: I thought it was beautiful. I really love Mahershala Ali in it. He's this sort of older mentory role in the movie. Is that how you guys would describe it? Yeah, like mm-hmm. he's an
0: early father figure yeah. when when Chiron is a kid.
3: And just seeing him in this role, I mean, I'd seen him recently in Luke Cage and then also in House of Cards as Remy. He was such a different character. And seeing him as an actor, I thought he was amazing. Yeah. But in general, I had heard Gene talk about this movie so
0: much. <laughs> <laughs> We're
3: like... Months? Is it months now? Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of like, well, you know, maybe like I I need to go watch it. And then I finally did this past weekend. And I mean, even the way it was filmed just from very low angles and parts and in ways that felt like you were there. um, It was really good at creating that feeling in a almost physical way, too. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, uh, this film does what fiction exists to do, which is take you out of your own dumb head and put <laughs> you in a situation in another body, in another brain, mm. and show you painstakingly through the gradual, slow accretion of small, specific details that the human experience is universal, that we have the same feelings about... Our situation is are very different, but our, our emotions are not. There's a long walk to a car <laughs> <laughs> that is just weighted down with all this unsaid stuff. And I mm-hmm. had, have never had a situation like Sharon's in this movie. And, uh, you know, the, the moment that follows it, nothing like that. But that moment, I've been in that space. Mm-hmm. There's a moment a little bit later in a kitchen when you can see on the actor uh, Travante Rhodes's face... Shout out to that guy. It's, that's an amazing <laughs> performance. So good. You can see... I thought you to shout at his face. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that too. That this moment is about to happen. This thing is about to... Like, what he says in that next second is going to change his life fundamentally. Mm. You can see him pulling it back right before he says it. It's just so loaded with moments like that. It does what fiction is meant to do, and it does it beautifully mm. and understated, and so much is left unsaid. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. so many ellipses, like, in this
2: movie. I mean, just the scene, there's this really important scene in the first act in which Sharon, who then is being called Little, yeah. um, is at the table, and he asks Lee's character, uh, whose name is Juan, he sits him down, and he's like, uh, what's a faggot? and they have this conversation about sexuality. It's like a really loving conversation, oh but my God. um he it's starts so to okay. say something else oh, I and know his uh, and his girlfriend who's played by uh Janelle Monáe yeah. stops she just shakes her head. I wanted to know yeah. oh what God, she was I stopping him that. from yeah, saying, yeah. right? And I have a I have a I think I know what she was stopping him from saying, but I don't know, right? And it just there were so many moments like that. It was like there's a a world in which these people inhabit that is not just about the scene right yeah. like it felt like you were sitting in on an actual conversation that might happen I'm
0: so glad you brought up Me that too. scene that look on her face mm-hmm. like i don't think i don't think of janelle Monet as an actor sure, i think right. of her as a as a performer right, and an right. incredible performer but this was so subdued like the rest of the movie this glance mm-hmm. that she shoots him it's so subtle and in so many other movies like this tv shows like this in that scene like that happening at the the dinner table the like Oh, no, Mm -hmm. everything would have been ramped up so much more. But she she shoots him like a flicker of a look Mm -hmm. and it speaks volumes. (laughs) Yeah, I loved this movie. And I I think the the subtlety and the quietude and also just these these larger themes of who you become when you decide who you're going to become, who you're going to forgive and how Mm -hmm. that's going to manifest itself. While I was watching the movie, I was like, huh, this is really quiet. Mm -hmm. And then later, it just kept percolating in my head... And I kept piecing together pieces of it in my head and reliving it in my head. It stuck with me for, for a long time. And I love this movie. I hope, I hope this movie is as embraced by audiences mm-hmm. as it is by, mm-hmm. by critics. Yeah. What did you guys think of the casting of this movie in terms of how different these three versions of Chiron
2: are. So much of this movie happens, as we said before, like, on the faces of the characters. And there were moments in each of the acts in which... I mean, because they don't... The three actors don't look anything alike. Right. They're, like, roughly the same skin complexion, but that's it. Yeah. In which you could sort of see echoes of, like, like, sort of running through... Uh, in the last act, we see Trevante Rhodes, who is, like, a, a very physically different person yeah. than teenage Sharon is. Oh. And when he meets someone from his past and they're having a conversation and when he's asked a question you see that sort of like crack in the facade you see mm-hmm. yeah, something that's yeah. very similar to very like vulnerable. The, the vulnerable the teenage Chiron, that kid needs to be nominated for something he right. was, yeah. he was really just good. i wanted to hug him so badly <laughs> he just seemed so vulnerable yeah. and then he just i just it was like heartbreaking they don't look alike but you see a piece of the same sort of like the same demeanor, just for a couple seconds, like flickers of, like when totally. he sort of dodges a question that someone asks him directly.
0: Yeah, in the in the Travante Rhodes performance, you definitely see the ripples and reverberations of decisions that teenage Chiron has made, mm-hmm. and just decisions of where to completely spackle over parts of him that created problems for him, or that he felt created problems for him. The way each version of this character is feeding off of decisions and actions by the previous incarnation mm. is really, really fascinating to watch. And it's so interesting to see how you get from kid Chiron to adult Chiron mm-hmm. and the compromises and challenges that have come along the way. Oh, I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: the one thing, and it's a really, 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 really minor critique Naomi Harris plays Chiron's mother, and yeah. she's a drug addict. And so this is one of the things that Chiron is sort of navigating she was actorly, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so there were some notes that felt less sort of naturalistic. The rest of the movie, yeah. honestly, like there were parts of it, except for the fact that it was like beautifully shot. Yeah. But, um, There were parts of it that almost felt like documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And there were parts in which she just seemed almost like too big for the mm-hmm. moment. Like There was only two or three times when I felt that, but I felt it so much because the rest of the movie felt so natural yeah. that I
1: think in another movie I wouldn't have noticed that at all.
0: She's forced to, to serve as a little bit of shorthand, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, in ways that don't necessarily serve her well.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this film feels natural and documentary-like, but it also feels like a story that hasn't been told a million times. Mm-hmm. I'm not using mm-hmm. this as an excuse, Stephen, to dump on Boyhood again. Um, <laughs> I but, knew Boyhood was going to come up. But, I mean, here it is. This is a story we haven't seen before mm. uh, millions and millions of times. And, I, you know, I r- railed against the coming-of-age story because it seems like, as a culture, we tell ourselves only the one coming-of-age story. Right. And mm-hmm. As logistically brilliant and unmatched as boyhood is, what it came away with, for me, felt familiar. The only elements of this story that felt at all familiar is the stuff with the mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've mm-hmm. seen pieces of that elsewhere. We just haven't seen this adoption of a persona as a way to get through life Absolutely. in quite this way. And, you know, I, this, this thing affected me in small way, like Juan is teaching little how to swim Oh, yeah. oh and yeah. uh, that, scene. that scene is just so filled with all these little moments and uh, this thing that uh, Juan says seemed ad-libbed and I'm sure it wasn't written might have been I don't know but he just says more athletic and it's yeah. like oof oh jeez, yeah. oh wow <laughs> right, right, right. That, that I recall something very <laughs> like that <laughs> uh, yeah and uh, the scene where the teenage Chiron performs an act that propels him into the third act yes. of the film. I was holding a little plastic cup, a little tumbler, yeah. and it cracked. Yeah. <laughs> just, just like, Whoa. oh, so yeah. is this film working on me? I guess it is. There's going to be a backlash against sure. it because mm. it is huge. It is as praised, universally praised as it is. It's going to be dinged as sentimental, which I've already seen it started to be, and I don't buy that. I am I, I, don't 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 think it is. I am the biggest no. guard against sentimentality, yeah, as, yeah. as you'll find. And this felt everything about it. Again, even the moments with the mom felt real. Mm-hmm. They didn't feel necessarily true in, right. in a weird way. Mm-hmm. So I was on guard for that. It's also going to get dinged, I think, because, you know, you can't find a gay guy to play a gay guy. You have <laughs> to get a straight <laughs> actor, which again, it seems to me like... They, something... actually,
0: they actually got Tilda Swinton.
1: Yeah. they <laughs> <laughs> totally should get Tilda Swinton.
4: Oh. That would
2: have been awesome.
0: Oh, man.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, that's okay. That's a critique, but I wouldn't want to see anybody else... But uh, Travante Rhodes playing that particular role because he just knocked it out of the park. I think a lot of people in the theater, <laughs> when they first saw Trevante Rhodes, made, made reactions that
2: made me think yeah. that they agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, the important, very, very, very important backstory here is that both Barry and uh, Terrell, Terrell is the playwright who wrote in Moonlight, Black yeah. Boys Look Blue. Both Barry and Terrell are from this housing project in which the movie is set um, in Liberty City, Miami. They grew up a couple blocks away from each other. Wow. They didn't know each other growing up. Terrell and Barry, both their mothers were drug addicts. Uh, they're both addicted to crack. Terrell's mother died of HIV in the 90s. Barry's mother is HIV positive. She's still alive. We talked a little bit about that on the podcast. Barry's mom hasn't seen it, but basically, uh, like an amalgamation of both their, of their both mothers, of the mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really close to them. Um, and there is, you know, there's a scene in which Sharon is coming home and one morning, and that scene like was was really hard to watch. When, and he's he's meets his mother who is like just having this like manic episode. Mm-hmm. So much of this is again is like not about sort of like shouty scenes right, or the, right. or um, yeah. even. There's another scene in the second act and this sort of like was a defining moment for Sharon. Just the way this beach scene was shot was yeah, just so. really restrained. Very
3: yeah. romantic too, in a sense. Yeah,
2: and like really, really tense, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the, scene, the third act was like, I was just the whole time I'm like, oh my God. I like, I need, a, I need a fan here. Huh? <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it, yeah, well, it's, it's just stakes. Mm-hmm. You just yeah. feel the stakes mm-hmm. in all of those pivotal scenes. Like, this could go a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. The range of outcomes is incredibly wide. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Even the ending, which I've seen a bunch of really thoughtful pieces about, like, one of the last shots in the movie. About, like, what sort of being let down by what happens there. But I thought that was, like, in keeping with the spirit of the rest of the movie and that it was, like, really restrained and you don't get this thing. And the main character... And, like, the character
3: himself, too, very restrained. Very
2: restrained and very sort of, like, unrealized hope. You know, like, I mean, he just couldn't have it. I think that was a really... Great choice. Ah, So good. Yeah, we're gushing.
0: All right, so (laughs) this is where I say if you have thoughts on Moonlight, go to Facebook.com slash PCHH. Give us your thoughts. Hopefully, if you're in a big enough city, you probably have a way of seeing this movie. See the movie. Yeah, please do. When we come back, it will be time for our favorite segment of this and every week, What is
4: Making Us Happy. So stick around. Support for this podcast comes from the new original comedy Search Party on TBS. Here's John Early describing his character, Elliot.
0: Elliot is a self-made man, just very much of this kind of multi-hyphenate generation, which is so true to so many people I know, of just like, actor, producer, event planner, you know, he does everything, which means he kind of does nothing.
4: You can binge the entire season of Search Party in one week, starting Monday, November 21st at 11, 10 Central on TBS.
0: It's time once again for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week, buddy?
1: Uh, We've talked about the FX show Atlanta a bit on the show. Uh, It just had its season finale. Uh, a great episode called The Jacket. For a show that is as formally inventive as that show has been, it ended with a very quiet, almost familiarly structured episode. But what I wanna really shout out is the performance uh, that I don't think has gotten uh, the attention it should have, uh, by Brian Tyree Henry, who plays Paperboy, the mm. rapper yeah. Yes, the show. That show is good, but it's not often laugh-out-loud funny. Sure, it, mm. And anytime it is, you can mm. bet that it has something to do <laughs> with uh, Brian Tyree Henry. His expressions, his reactions, in, <laughs> in a larger sense, are what just keep me coming back to this show. Everything does. Everything about the show keeps me coming back to it. But there is a special joy in that performance, which is so nuanced and so mm-hmm. layered. And just often, when you think you're going down one path, you get knocked into this other path, all because of how he reacts to something. Mm-hmm. So, Brian Tyree Henry on Atlanta, great stuff.
0: Yeah. Oh, totally that's good. such a good show. Thank mm-hmm. you, Glenn. Great pick. Cat Chow, what's making you happy this week?
3: What's making me happy is I just finished up this awesome book called The Wings versus the World by an author named Jade Chang. I see Jessica Reedy lighting up. um, (laughs) And it's lighting
0: up with enjoyment, not lighting up with enjoyment, not
3: not fury. Um, And this book is so funny. So it's fiction and it's kind of in that genre of like crazy rich Asians, like that Kevin Kwan novel. But instead of being set in Asia or um, some Asian country. This is sort of like a immigrant story in the U.S., but instead of idealizing the home country, it goes in a completely different direction, and I really enjoyed it. The writing is sharp, the characters are very nicely developed, and it goes by quickly. So if you're looking for something to kind of get you through the end of election week, then <laughs> I really recommend it. And it feels, I think they're going to make this into a movie. It feels very sort of cinematic in the way it's written. Yeah. Um, The title is The Wings versus the World by Jade Chang.
0: Great. Thank you, Cat Chow. Gene Demby,
2: what's making you happy this week? Uh, I am going to steal from Glenn and, and do two. I know he usually has like an omnibus <laughs> Um So the first one actually is, since we're talking about Barry Jenkins, uh, his first movie, Medicine for Melancholy, yes. um, was a favorite of mine for a long time. It came out in 2008. It was funny because uh, Moonlight is like it hit me in a bunch of places. But so did Medicine for Melancholy. Which is, it's a story about, very much like before Sunset, it's a people who meet cute, and actually not that cute, um, Wyatt Cenac and an actress named Tracy Higgins, are sort of thrown into the situation where they spend a weekend together sort of getting to know each other. Um, They're black people who live in San Francisco which is like the least black of the... <laughs> bl- no, seriously, like, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. statistically the least black of like the, I think the 25 largest American metro areas. Hmm. Um, and so, so much of their fraught quasi-courtship over the two days is informed by the fact that like we might be the only people who might like roll in these circles. And I was... 27 when it came out it was like it was right where i was right where i lived in a lot of ways (laughs) and so uh if you haven't seen it it's on netflix um the other thing i wanted to shout out was this uh documentary it's not i don't know what you would call it actually um it's called camera person it's by this woman named kirsten johnson she's a documentary filmmaker and it's a collection of like footage that she's shot over decades of doing her job And it is mesmerizing. At first, you're like, what the hell is going on? Like the first shots are just sort of like established, like her sort of setting up her cameras like on the side of a road and like there's sheep walking by, she's somewhere. And then it starts to slowly sort of like zoom into the stories of the people that she's shooting. And you get the sense, you start to feel some of her ambivalence about sort of being on the edges of some of these really terrible stories in a lot of cases and not being able to do anything, but also sort of, like you just get wrapped up in the stories but it jumps around it's sort of a collage so you're never in one place for too long even though she sort of circles back to them Mm -hmm. and so you start to see these themes emerging I mean, it's a riveting movie. If you can see it in a theater, I think you should see it in a movie theater because it needs to be seen on a giant screen, a full-throated endorsement of a camera person.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Gene Demby. In the spirit of, of both of you guys, I brought two things. Uh, we are now in, in November, and mm-hmm. November is known for a lot of uh, highly anticipated entertainment. Mm-hmm. This tends to be more the case in things like movies than it is in things like music, mm-hmm. where typically in November, December, into early January, the release schedule slows down quite a a bit and you get like a few kind of big mainstream music releases that are designed to sell on black friday and hip-hop tends not to dry up completely in that time of year which i guess is maybe why these two albums i'm so incredibly excited about are still coming out in 2016 <laughs> and i i cannot wait one after 18 years, there is a new Tribe Called yeah. Quest album <laughs> coming yes. out the day that this episode oh, uh, drops. They are also going to be on Saturday Night Live yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, the, the day after this, <laughs> this episode drops. I'm in the tank for Ali Shaheed Muhammad because of his work on Microphone Check oh, for wait. NPR and also, of course, his actual career. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in addition to this, as fans or, or even kind of casual fans of the band know, Fife Dog, one of its members, died earlier this this year, mm-hmm. And that seems to have sort of inspired these guys to get back together and make what is being billed as like, this is it. This is our last record. Uh, it's called We Got It From Here, Thank You For Your Service. Mm-hmm. And very little from this record has trickled out. So there's always a possibility that I could be incredibly disappointed by it. Mm-hmm. But I'm so excited that it, it exists. I mean, this, is, this has been happening in so many other genres of music where these bands will reunite after 17 years. Oh, there's a new My Bloody Valentine record for the first time <laughs> in 20 years enjoy but to see it happen with this band mm-hmm. uh which was just such an incredibly key band in, in those in those heady in my heady early 90s college oh. radio days i'm so so ready for it speaking of things i'm so so ready for cannot let an episode of pop culture happy hour <laughs> go by without expressing my excitement about the hamilton mixtape For those who have not already <laughs> flipped out about it which i'm talking about about 15 percent of our audience here mm. the track listing alone is making me happy it's uh, these kind of re of the songs on the hamilton cast album the two that they have put out as of this taping are my shot the rise up remix <laughs> by the roots featuring buster rise oh my god
2: Family rushing and wonder we bust have been feeling the hunger and feeding the lust away, lust away See, I've been patiently waiting for this moment to rise up again as the way I was molded, and is the last one standing as the rest of the folded. Give me my one chance to grab the torch and properly hold. It. I said I'm not throwing
1: away, my shot. I said I'm not throwing away.
0: My- and the Oh my god, it's Quiet Uptown, which on the Hamilton cast album makes me blubber like a baby, yeah. performed by Kelly Clarkson. Bye. Uh, and this performance has gotten like these wonderful kind of kind of critical notices for Kelly Clarkson who I've always thought was criminally underrated looking at this track listing it also has all these Easter eggs in terms of outtakes probably the one I'm most excited about a few months ago Linda uh, referenced Congratulations which is this great Mm. Angelica Schuyler takedown of Alexander Hamilton as Linda has said many times about Hamilton she wishes the Angelica character were fleshed out a little bit more Mm -hmm. and given Mm -hmm. a little I think everyone feels that way yeah Yeah, Yeah. like that that there's clearly it feels like she has a song missing Mm -hmm. that song is Congratulations It's performed on the Hamilton mixtape by Dessa, who is is a a singer and rapper who I... Absolutely Mm, love and I'm so hoping that this like turns more people onto her I have not heard it yet Mm. but I can't wait Mm -hmm. Uh, I love having great music to look forward to at the end of the year when people who write about music are spending so much time starting to prep like their year end coverage getting surprised with with new music that excites you is
2: a treat if you like Hamilton by the way I'm just going to shout out uh, the code switch podcast one more time and do some log rolling Uh, you should (laughs) holler at code switch uh, next Wednesday we'll have a treat for you let's say cannot wait to hear
0: that all right, and that brings us to the end of Pop Culture Happy Hour this week. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow the show at PCHH. You can follow me at I Dislike Stephen. That's Stephen with a PH. You can follow Glenn Weldon at G H Weldon, and you can follow Cat Chow at Cat Chow. That's K A T C H O W. And of course, you can follow our pal Gene Demby at G D two fifteen. That's G E E D E E two one five. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy, and you can follow our producer and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, that's K A T Z I F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to now. So, thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening, and we will see you right back here next week.
1: Are you a music nerd or a fledgling music nerd who wants to know more about what's out there? The All Songs Considered podcast from NPR Music is here to help. All Songs Considered is NPR's music discussion and discovery podcast. Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton share the best new and upcoming music, including an extended conversation with Justin Vernon, frontman of Bon Iver. Find songs you'll fall in love with on All Songs Considered every Tuesday on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts.